Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. Hello, hello, my friends. I am happy to be back in your ears today. I am answering a question that I had from a listener recently. So on my Instagram, I asked people what they wanted to hear about on the podcast. I'm going to be doing my best to uh, do episodes based on what you want to hear about. So if you aren't, as an aside, if you're not already following me on Instagram at Sasha High MD, go on over, follow, say hello. I would love to connect with you there. That's where I hang out on social media mostly. All right. So for today, you guys are in for something a little different. I'm trying something new. For those of you who have been following my podcast journey, I started in August and I was scripting all of my episodes because, you know, I want to be excellent. I want to try to make this good for you. Um, But every episode was taking me like six hours and it was painful and I've just decided I can't continue that way if I'm going to keep showing up every week. So I am trying this unscripted. I am um, putting this together. I've got my point form notes and I'm just going to go for it. So hopefully this is okay. We shall see. All right. We're talking about bariatric surgery. Is bariatric surgery cheating? That's one of the questions that I get. Um, you know, does bariatric surgery mean that I'm a failure, that I've failed to manage my weight, right? There's all these misconceptions around bariatric surgery. So I thought I'd just take the opportunity to talk about it. What role does bariatric surgery play in weight loss, in obesity treatment, and kind of give you guys some, you know, like a general overview of what bariatric surgery is and what the options are. So firstly, if you're like, what is she talking about? What is bariatric surgery? Bariatric surgery is essentially weight loss surgery. It is a surgery that is done to promote weight loss. And a lot of people have thoughts that, you know, if you require bariatric surgery is because you failed, right? You um, failed to manage your weight on your own. Um, It somehow means something about you. It's cheating. There's also people who think, well, like it just gives me a smaller stomach. Like I don't want to do that. I should be able to manage this on my own. Or other people who have a lot of fear around it, right? Like it's super dangerous. Basically, I'm going to die on the table if I do that. And um, so, you know, there's a whole lot of thoughts. There's a whole lot of bias, weight bias that kind of plays into these ideas. So, you know, bariatric surgery is a tool that has been proven to be effective for the treatment of obesity as a chronic medical condition. Now, let's remind ourselves that the definition of obesity is when excess adiposity or fat tissue on the body is causing problems, whether that be mechanical problems, metabolic problems, um, psychiatric problems. So we're not just talking about people with larger bodies. We're talking about the disease that we call obesity. And I I just want to highlight that. And so, you know, we know that uh, obesity is a challenging condition to treat and that interventions typically, you know, the try to just eat less and move more, uh, quote unquote, lifestyle interventions that have been traditionally touted as the prescription for elevated weight. Um, And even, you know, when you use medication, will have a limit to how much weight loss is expected. So from most of the large trials with 
quote unquote lifestyle alone, which, you know, to be fair, I have my issue with the interventions that they employ in these trials where they basically tell people to count calories and they often do not deal with the, you know, emotional eating behaviors, stress eating, all the underlying why that drives overeating. Like that's not addressed in these studies. So when you just kind of counsel someone on counting their calories and, you know, being mindful of choosing more protein and fiber, the overall weight loss in those trials is like two to 5%, right? So yeah, it's, it's nice. All weight loss is good if you're trying to deal with, you know, if you're trying to treat obesity, but not huge numbers. So two to 5%, not super hopeful. When you add medications, it ranges from eight to 11%, you know, based on with whether the medication is combined with an intensive behavioral therapy uh, intervention as well. Now, I'm just going to throw in a plug here because our clinic, and I so believe in the value of the mindset behind it and dealing with the underlying why of behaviors and helping empower people towards behavior change. Um, and so, you know, you could we call it coaching. You can also, also call it psychotherapy. But when, when acceptance and commitment therapy has been added to standard behavioral interventions, the average weight loss increases to 14%, which is pretty incredible. So anyway, there's, there's my plug for why that piece is so, so important. Now, coming back to bariatric surgery, bariatric surgery is the only intervention that we currently have that can yield, uh, you know, weight loss in the range of greater than 25 to 30% of starting body weight. Now, I have patients in my clinic who just through dietary interventions have lost over 100 pounds. So it's not to say that it's impossible to do it without bariatric surgery. We're just talking about average numbers that we see when we study large population samples, okay? So bariatric surgery yields the most weight loss currently at this point in time. Now, the options for bariatric surgery in Canada typically include lap band, Rouen-Y gastric bypass, and vertical sleeve gastrectomy. Now, there's a couple other interventions um, and some newer things coming out, but these are the main ones that I'm going to talk about. So let's start with who qualifies for bariatric surgery. Now, this is where, you know, we're really trying to stop using BMI as a, as a criteria for the definition of obesity because everyone knows how flawed BMI is, and yet we base our bariatric surgery qualification on BMI. So it's it's a little bit backwards, but whatever. Currently, BMI of greater than 40, um, you qualify for bariatric surgery, or a BMI greater than 35 plus an adiposity-related medical condition. So that could be high blood pressure, it could be type 2 diabetes, it could be fatty liver, high cholesterol. Now, interestingly, in Canada, you know, that, that's a whole lot of people who would qualify for bariatric surgery, and only one in 400 people who qualify will actually go through with the surgery. And, you know, I think that reflects a number of things. One, it reflects the lack of access. So there are a lot of places in Canada where people can't access a surgical center or the wait times are three years long. I see a lot of patients in the East Coast, and I, I hear that from them, like the wait times are super long. Um, but it also reflects that the bias that people have, right? Like, I don't want to have surgery. That means I've failed. And so um, that's why we need to have this discussion. Okay, so who does not quali qualify for bariatric surgery? So there's no kind of strong contraindications, but there are some what we call relative contraindications. So um, people will get turned down. If you are a smoker, you will get turned down for bariatric surgery. You need to stop smoking for a year. Alcohol and drug abuse, 
If you have an active cancer that's undergoing treatment, uh, that would be a reason that to potentially wait. Unstable cardiac disease, uh, recent psychiatric hospitalization or untreated psychiatric illness, and binge eating disorder as well. Now, let's talk about the different types of bariatric surgery. So the first one I'm going to talk about is lap band. And what I'm going to say about lap band is don't do it. <laughs> lap band used to be pretty popular. And it has really fallen out of favor. In fact, the Canadian guidelines suggest against uh, the use of lap, lap band for, um, for the reason that there are a high rate of complications and it isn't that effective long term. So lap band is essentially putting an elastic band around the top part of your, uh, of your stomach so that you can't eat as much, right? In my mind, it's akin to like trying to tape your mouth shut, right? So it's just, it, it doesn't address the physiologic drivers of weight. And what we understand is that obesity is, obesity is a uh, endocrinopathy. It is, you know, there's a lot of psychology behind it. There's a lot of hormones. There's a lot of physiology. So just trying to like put a band on your stomach so that you eat less, I mean, it doesn't work that long term, that long. Uh, and then you can have like the band eroding through and you can get, you know, lots of problems for it, reflux, things like that. And you can out eat the band, right? So it doesn't deal with the underlying problems uh, that can, can drive some overeating behaviors. And not all over, not all obesity is overeating, but, you know, if you have overeating behaviors, just putting that band on actually doesn't stop it. And it just kind of makes people miserable because you have all this hunger, right? Because the hormones that are driving hunger are like amped up, but you can't really eat that much or you're going to feel sick. So you know, people can feel really miserable with it. So that's lap band. Uh, generally fallen out of favor, not recommended at this point. Now, the next one is Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So what they do with the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass in really simple layman's terms is they are going to cut the stomach and leave a small remnant of stomach. It's about the size of an egg. And then they connect that portion of the stomach uh, they they skip over the remaining of the, the re remainder of the stomach. They skip over the first part of the small intestine, and then they attach that little pouch of stomach down further to uh, some what's called the the roux portion or the um, a more distant portion of the small intestine. So what that means is you cannot take in as much food because you have a smaller reservoir. However, I think the misconception about bariatric surgery is that that's all that happens, right? You get a smaller pouch, you don't eat as much. But what actually happens is, and this is, I think, where I, I find it very interesting. When food passes from the stomach and skips over that initial part of the small intestine to the more distal part of the small intestine or the more downstream part um, of the small intestine, there's actually an increase in a hormone, one of the satiety signals, which is called GLP-1. And GLP-1 is actually the, the hormone that is used in one of the anti-obesity medications. So what has been discovered in studies is that people who have this Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, not only are they having a restrictive component to, to, the, to the procedure, i.e. having a smaller stomach so it restricts how much you can take in, but it actually has a hormonal benefit. So there is an increase in GLP-1 levels, which is a good thing, that activates the pathways within the brain, which are going to decrease hunger, uh, decrease intake, and increase weight loss. 
So it's not only a restrictive surgery, it is also a hormonal surgery. And that part is so important to understand. It also explains why people who go into bariatric surgery who also have type 2 diabetes and they might be on insulin, for example, oftentimes the very next day after bariatric surgery, they're no longer requiring their diabetes medication anymore. They don't need their insulin anymore. Why is that, right? Like, it's not like they've lost weight overnight. The weight loss hasn't happened yet, but we see the metabolic improvements almost immediately. The reason for that is because of the hormonal changes. So that's Rouen-Y gastric bypass. And uh, the reason it's called Rouen-Y is because the stomach is connected to that roux component and the shape of the small intestine looks like a Y. So that's why it's, it's called that. The other procedure is called vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And in vertical sleeve gastrectomy, essentially uh, they take uh, half of, or like the half of the, of the stomach and they leave, it's like a vertical cut, a vertical incision that they make in the stomach and they leave a longer pouch of stomach. So again, it is giving you a smaller stomach as a result. Uh, you're left with a smaller pouch, but they actually take the top part of the stomach and the top part of the stomach is where a hormone called ghrelin is produced. Now, if you remember on one of my previous episodes where I go through the, all the hormones, ghrelin is, a, is the main hunger hormone. And so with vertical sleeve gastrectomy, postoperatively, people will have lower ghrelin levels. So again, less hunger. So again, this is a hormonal surgery. It's affecting the hormones that drive um, you know, appetite and affect the energy regulation pathways within the hypothalamus because these hormones, the GLP-1 I talked about, the ghrelin that I'm talking about, they actually communicate to your brain and your hypothalamus and um, will, will regulate where, whether you're, you know, expending energy or taking in energy. So with the reduction in ghrelin, people will have uh, reduced hunger afterwards, and that can also play into the weight loss that happens. So again, vertical sleep gastrectomy is a restrictive and a hormonal surgery. It's not just giving you a smaller stomach, it's impacting the physiology that is driving uh, weight gain. Now, both of these procedures are typically done laparoscopically. So for the vast majority of people, these are laparoscopic procedures. They take a few hours. You might spend one night in hospital and be discharged the next day. So we've come along way um, in terms of the surgeries that used to be like these huge open surgeries, you know, definitely previously were higher risk. Now, because it's laparoscopic, there's a much lower mortality rate, so less than 0.1%, and a low rate of, you know, serious complication. It's less than 5%. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't complication, right? So with anything, there is risk, right? You're having a surgery, there is risk to it, but I think we need to, you know, sometimes when I'm t counseling patients about this, they get very focused on the risks of the surgery, but they forget, number one, that there's benefits to the surgery, right? That's why you're going for it. But they also forget that there's risks with chronic obesity, right? So if you have tried, you know, behavioral changes, if you have tried medical treatment and and you have, you know, obesity or you know, excess adiposity that is resistant to those interventions, that is where bariatric surgery might be a tool. And so you have to weigh the risks of that excess adiposity and the metabolic diseases and the complications that can come with that with the risks of the procedure. So it's sort of that kind of looking at the risks and benefits on both sides, not just focusing on the risk of the surgery. 
So afterwards, you know, the kind of long-term risks are for nutritional deficiencies. And that's a very real, you know, that is going to happen. It, most people will have nutritional deficiencies if they don't do something about it. But that's where, you know, with appropriate vitamin and su- uh, vitamins and supplements that can be avoided. So most people are going to be on long-term multivitamin, likely iron, likely calcium and vitamin D. And as long as you're good about taking your vitamins and supplements, those nutritional deficiencies can be avoided. Um, There are some other kind of surgery-specific complications that can happen, like post-operative infection and things like that. But again, the risk of serious complication is less than 5%. Um, Now, there is a move now to move away from, sorry, <laughs> there's a move to move away. So there, there is a motion to move away from calling this bariatric surgery. So moving away from the idea that this is weight loss surgery to calling it metabolic surgery. And the reason for that is because the surgery has been associated with significant metabolic improvements. So, you know, I just mentioned that oftentimes people will be off their diabetes medications the very next day. Uh, there's, there is mortality benefit. There are improvements in many different metabolic conditions like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and fatty liver disease. And so, you know, I think that that might, might play into uh, perhaps that move is also because there is bias and kind of stigma about having bariatric surgery. And perhaps if we reframe that to metabolic surgery, I don't know, maybe that's going to be more accepted. Uh, But along with that, there is more... there are uh, more people that are actually qualifying. So I told you that the criteria previously were BMI or currently are BMI greater than 40 or 35 with comorbidities, but there are some centers that are now taking people with a BMI of 30 who also have uh, metabolic conditions that are refractory to management. So they're not responding to appropriate management. So for example, someone with a BMI of 30 who has type 2 diabetes and is already on like multiple agents plus insulin and still not getting good sugar control, they would uh, be a, a candidate potentially for metabolic surgery to see improvements in all of those things. Now, the question, another question I get a lot is, can you regain the weight? Yes, of course you can regain the weight because obesity is a chronic condition. It tends to be progressive. It tends to be relapsing. You know, that unfortunately is the story for a lot of people, regain. And the highest risk period for weight regain is in that 12 to 18 to 24 month period. So a year out from surgeries when start people start regaining the weight. And the thought is that uh, at this point, there is kind of like a dietary reversion. So going back to previous dietary patterns, of higher, you know, calorie dense foods. Um, and so this is where it's like, it's, it's not inevitable. So if you have really good multidisciplinary support working on what's driving the overeating behavior, then, you know, some of that weight weight regain can be avoided. But this is also why people with, you know, binge eating disorder, uh, would probably not be a good candidate unless they're treated. But emotional eating behaviors and binge behaviors have been associated with an increased risk of weight regain after the surgery. So when I'm counseling people, um, we will often say like, hey, let's really work on getting to the root of your stress eating, getting to the root of your emotional eating, the disordered eating behavior, getting to a point where you've learned to manage the emotional regulation side and the cognitive piece so that your, you know, your risk of weight regain is lower and you're going to have a better chance of long-term success. 
Now, this is sort of where I have beef with the public system in Ontario. Um, in Ontario, bariatric surgery is pu- publicly funded for appropriate people, but because of the funding, it's a you know provincial government funding issue, the follow-up stops at 12 months. And that really bothers me because that is the highest risk time for weight regain. And at this point, patients are just kind of discharged back to their family doctor who, you know, with all respect, that's just not their specialty, right? A family doctor's specialty is not necessarily to prevent the weight regain that come after bariatric surgery. And so I really feel like that's a huge disservice to people who undergo bariatric surgery in Ontario, and that really needs to be addressed. Um, You know, shameless plug, we help a lot of these people in our clinic. So we do have a lot of people who come to us um, after bariatric surgery, and then and we really help them to have that long, long-term success. Because I think the most, you know, it can be so demoralizing, right, to do this thing that is, quote unquote, the most invasive thing that you can do to help manage your weight, and then to regain it afterwards can be really demoralizing and make you feel like, okay, now what, I, like, I've got nothing. Um, and so we, we help those people to prevent the weight regain and to help them long term. So my overall take, I think I've covered everything I wanted to take uh, to cover. My overall take is that bariatric surgery is a tool. It is a tool in the toolbox. And for the appropriate person, it might be a really, really good option. Obesity is hard to treat, particularly chronic obesity. So when there has been long-term metabolic adaptation because of chronic obesity, so you know, people who have genetic obesity that they've essentially had obesity since childhood. Um, that makes weight loss through other means like lifestyle changes or even medication more challenging. And bariatric surgery is going to give the most weight loss at this point on average compared to other interventions. So 25 to 30% of initial body weight. Uh, It is an area where we are learning more. There's a lot, um, there, there are a lot of, you know, different types of interventions that are being looked at. But on the flip side, we are also uh, getting more, Um, medical treatment options. And I think that's really exciting too. So we have a medication that's expected to come out in Canada in January that the average weight loss is 17% and about 40% of people lose more than 20%, right? So we're getting, we're starting to see numbers with medical treatment that will compete, you know, that compete with the numbers that we see with bariatric surgery. And that's neat because then people have other options. And bottom line, you know, I think what my encouragement is, is that we really need to focus on preventing the weight gain, not only treating, uh, trying to achieve weight loss, but just preventing weight gain um, because this is chronic, this is progressive. So the more we can do to promote health and wellness and prevent weight gain, um, the better off we're all going to be. So here's what I suggest if uh, if this is something that you've considered, you know, if you're wondering about bariatric surgery, what you need to do is talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor, get some more information. If they don't know about it, what they can do is refer you to a surgical center. And the first step, um, at least in Ontario, the first step is always just an orientation session to give you information. So even if you got a referral to a bariatric surgery center, that doesn't mean you're signing up, you know, to have surgery the next day. It just means you are going to get more information. So my my encouragement to people is always, hey, if you're at all considering it, you might as well have go to the orientation, get some more information, speak to the people who actually do the procedure. This is not, not something that we offer in our clinic. I have no connection to the bariatric surgery, surgery centers. It is not something we offer, but it is a tool. And so I think it's so important for all of you to know about it. 
Okay, I hope that was helpful. Um, you know, if there are more questions, I would love to, you know, I can, I'm happy to do a part two if I didn't cover everything. So send me uh, a message, sasha at sashahimd.com. That's my email address. And if you want to ask more questions about it, I'd be happy to hear from you. All right, have a great day. Bye. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed listening to the High on Life podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and review it on Apple Podcasts. 